Hello, Cachimbonas. I am really excited to be bringing you episode 42 of season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. This week, I was really excited to bring fellow Latina lawyer Jehan Lena Romero back onto the podcast to discuss being women of color lawyers and making that practice sustainable. We got into an ABA report that gets into the attrition rate for women of color lawyers at corporate law firms, and then transitioned to discussing about what nonprofits can do to better support, train, and retain women of color lawyers. Thank you, thank you to everyone who has been leaving five-star reviews on Spotify. I do notice every single one and appreciate them so, so very much. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Hello, Cachibonas. I'm very excited to have actually like technically the most popular Radio Cachimbona guest with me here today. Oh my gosh, stop. I also, I also don't know why I added technically that was like unintended shape. <laughs> <laughs> the most listened to episode of Radio Cachimbona was our law school and lawyering advice episode that we did at this point two years ago, which is crazy because it doesn't really wow. feel like two years. But Jehan Lanier Romero, thank you so much for coming back onto the podcast today to also discuss being women of color lawyers and making that practice sustainable. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Yvette. Always love talking with you. Okay, so to start out, one of the kind of first thing I wanted to bring up was this AB, this ABA report on women lawyers attrition in the profession. It's called Left Out and Left Behind. And it's studying the experiences of women of color working at corporate law firms, which actually like neither of us know anything about really. But I think this was like one of the first reports of its kind looking at the experiences of women of color lawyers over time. Mm -hmm. And so I think like, you know, we just need more data points, like this kind of thing also needs to be done, you know, for people who are working in the nonprofit sector and like at smaller firms too. But I honestly don't think that the results would have been any different. The kind of the outcome of the report is that there's women of color are generally underrepresented at firms. They're only 14% of associates and then only 3% of them end up becoming equity partners. And with, as compared to white women, like white women wake up 32% of associates and then 17% of equity partners. Hmm. So there's like a real clear gap there. People are, first of all, there's like not enough women of color starting at law firms. And then there's like a huge attrition problem because they leave before they can become partners. And I haven't seen numbers to bear this out, but just on my personal experience, I would venture to say that maybe there's like slightly more women of color, like staff attorneys overall, but as compared to like law firm associates, but I feel like women of color are still very much underrepresented among executive directors at nonprofits, which I feel like is the equivalent of like an equity partner. 
Yeah, yeah. It's funny you say that. I, I agree with everything you just laid out. I don't think that anything would be different if we were looking at nonprofits. And I was actually working on a grant report today and a lot of foundation grants ask about the makeup demographic of your nonprofit. And while my, the nonprofit I work at is definitely majority people of color, mm-hmm. yeah, there's, there's a lack in the leadership for sure. Yeah. Of color. And I, yeah, I think that's right all the way across. One thing, I didn't read the entire report very closely, but one thing that they kind of talk about pretty prominently in their intro is it it didn't take them very long to find 90% of the women of color who work in law firms who have been there for more than 15 or 30 years. Like it was really quick to, because it's so few people basically right. to find like who they needed to survey. Yeah, it's a very small pool of people, unfortunately. So I guess taking a step back, do you want to share what your current role is and if you're happy with it? <laughs> yeah, I really like my current job. I don't know if we talked about it last time I was on the show. No. Mm-mm. No. Okay, cool. So I work at the Immigrant Legal Resource Center. Um, so it's a nonprofit that has offices in DC, Texas, and California. And they kind of have three prongs in the way that they think about their work. And I really touch on t- actually all those prongs, but one prong that is kind of how the Immigrant Legal Resource Center started was training people with technical legal capacity. Mm-hmm. So that would be training other like training attorneys. lawyers. Yeah. Training other immigration attorneys. And actually, I think really the way it started was like kind of out of a clinic out of Stanford and U- USF. So really, they were kind of like OG movement lawyers, like helping Central Americans file asylum applications in the 80s 90s then the other prong they have is trying to do advocacy and policy work and that's like where our dc office kind of comes in and our texas and california too but trying to pass better laws for immigrants and to protect immigrants and i would say that one cool thing about the ilrc is like we try to do take that from an abolitionist lens and from a crimmigration lens so like one part of the ilrc has always been trying to fight for better laws for folks that have been incarcerated or have had some kind of contact with the criminal legal system. And on that side, I work in the state of California trying to pass laws that would end detention. And fingers crossed, it's passed the Senate and the Assembly, but I'm um, helping with a budget proposal that would give localities money if they close a detention center to Mm, close down the detention center. yeah. Yeah, like create new infrastructure that would actually help the community because a lot of communities unfortunately rely on carceral centers for their economy and so this would help kind of like boost their economy without a carceral center yeah totally in arizona that's florence and Eloy completely they're like prison towns and also immigration detention center towns that make most of their profit from their deals with geo group and ice and they get really yeah they get really corrupt I, I mean, yeah. I, I definitely told yeah. you that when I visited you in Florence um, when you were working there, but I went there 2013, 2014, and then I saw you, what, 2018 there? Yeah. And I think there was like four times more prisons than there was before. That's so it just totally wow. became a prison town. Yeah, it went from like two to like nine or something, like something crazy. And then the last prong of what they do at the ILRC is community engagement type of work. So that would be like know your rights for folks that are immigrants and then like working with directly affected folks for like their knowledge and stuff that they actually want to do. 
So we like try to make the legal resources available to the community as well. And I really like it because half of my role is called community lawyer. So it's on that side of helping with organizing for better laws or helping community. And I'm on the anti-immigration enforcement team, which was like my favorite team ever. (laughs) And then the other half of my job is training other immigration attorneys, mostly in removal defense, which is can be very complicated. But yeah, yeah. That's really awesome. I knew about the technical assistance part of your job, but I didn't know about the community lawyering stuff. That's really cool. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty, I feel like I made up this job. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. Did you? <laughs> no, I got oh. someone else made it up. But I <laughs> mean, that happens sometimes, you know what I mean? Just, like people I find funding like it, and then it, do it. Yeah, it feels like it fit me really well because like those were my interests. So would you say that a big part of what makes up your ideal lawyer job right now is having this kind of multifaceted job where you're not doing just casework, where you're like doing legal analysis when you're training the lawyers, but you're also engaging in community work and policy analysis. Do you think that's like something that has made lawyering more sustainable for you? Because I feel like the way you talk about this job versus when you were doing direct legal services is like, this is a much more chilled out version of the lawyering that you were doing before, where you were like, just really stressed. Yeah, definitely. I I mean, we could definitely talk about this today. There is, I think this is an ideal job for me right now. I definitely burnt out on direct service work. And yeah, yeah we can talk about today on like how to try to make direct service work more sustainable. But yeah, I think a big part of what makes this job sustainable for me is I do really like jobs where I get this multifaceted approach and like, you know, you're able to yeah be involved in like different aspects of the movement. And not to say that that can't happen with direct service work. That was definitely what I was doing, but it does feel a lot more sustainable to not have clients. And then I think if I had to say what would make an ideal job with clients is a lot of nonprofits are very driven by the deliverables they get from foundations or even the government. Mm -hmm. In terms of like take on this many deportation cases a year. Yeah. So a lot of I think especially government grants will, yeah. will ask for mm-hmm. for numbers. And there's different sustainable models for doing that. And I can talk about like some of the shifts that folks are starting to do in funding. One really helpful way is, and the county of San Francisco does it this way, is just to fund the position. <laughs> so say like, you know, we'll, we'll give, I don't know how much money, I'm just going to make this up. It's not the real amount. 100k to your org to find a position i think that's low because mm-hmm. that doesn't like cover everything like benefits and stuff. i'm just saying 100k because yeah. it's like a, a regular number and then they'll have you need to keep a range of cases open but it's on the lower range so like it could be anywhere from like 20 to 40 cases for 100k um, wait why is that shift happening though I think a lot of, like, luckily in San Francisco, there were a lot of immigration nonprofits that were able to band together as a collective and Mm. make the case for, like, they did have to write, like, white papers and all those things, but, like, make the case for, like, we need retention and, like, this is the way to retain folks. And, like, even if we're not able to represent 100% of the folks, Mm. we, like, help unrepresented folks in these ways and, like, really make the case for that. And then in the state funding, which all of these have their own problems, not saying they're perfect, (laughs) in the state funding, rather than funding by number of cases, they're now looking to fund by matter. So like, you have to keep, I don't know, 30 to 40 matters open. What is that? And a matter would be a big component of your case. So you would get one matter for like filing the application. 
And then you can keep it active by like doing work on the application. And so that's how you would keep a matter open. But like one case might have four matters because you might do like two applications for it. You might have to do an appeal. You might have to like, I don't know, file a motion to reopen. So like all these. So like that way, instead of like, it really is compensating you for the work instead of trying to, because really a lot of these removal cases can get out of hand quick. So it's trying to to capture more of the work that they're doing. Like, not all cases are created equal. So, I mean, none of this is perfect, but I mean, unrestricted funding would be the best. (laughs) Exactly. Like, I think if you're going to interview for staff attorney direct service jobs, ask, how are you sharing the deliverables? Um, Mm. Because sometimes some places will just like slot one attorney for all one type of case. And personally, for me, that wasn't great. Like, so it would be better if I was working on some of these affirmative cases. So that's like filing applications to USCIS, some court cases where I'm going in, some detained cases rather than like, oh, you're just the detained attorney working on all detained cases. That's like really hard. Unless you have a team, like there's like, (laughs) there's a lot of things, but yeah, figuring out how you're sharing deliverables. If you're just starting to interview, like what's your support structure like, whether that be like admin staff or like, are you working on cases with other people? What's the mentorship like? By that, I mean, like, if I have questions on a case, like, who's helping me? If I'm a brand new attorney, how are you ramping up my cases so that Mm. I don't just have, like, 30 cases dropped on my desk, which has happened to me? (laughs) Just, like, trying to figure out those. Those are just different questions you might want to ask if you're looking at direct service jobs. I feel like you just shared, like, really important nonprofit corporate lingo with this, like, how do you divide the deliverables <laughs> I feel like I don't even ask that and I should be asking that <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you kind have, of getting yeah. to know more what your day-to-day is because oftentimes you know they're hiring to fill a need like they're like we have a need yeah for these deliverables or like we just set, told whatever grant or foundation that we would do x y and z if like that project sounds amazing and perfectly what you would want great <laughs> if it's If you'd also want to be doing other things, I think it's important to look at that too. Yeah, for sure. One of the quotes that stuck out to me from the report was a Black woman who said, I have to keep proving myself to clients, peers, superiors, subordinates, even after each success. I feel like I have to try harder than white men. I feel like people don't give me the same tools to succeed or excel. I have to make my own way without these tools for success. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, I I do think so. Um, For the most part, like even in the nonprofits that I've worked in, where I've worked with other, you know, women, women of color, like, except for sure, like, our, a lot of our clients are coming from, like, pretty patriarchal societies as well. So, like, proving yourself to your clients, like, yeah, I would often mm. get, like, are you my lawyer kind of thing? Or, like, yeah. oh, like when did you <laughs> when did you get out of school? Like, and I mean, it would happen in the courtroom. I think I might have told this story already on here, but, like, a judge typically, and I'm not saying this is fair or not, but judges would typically in court call the represented folks first to get the attorneys out first yeah yeah and then they would call the unrepresented folks so they had already done that and I you know checked in and given that I was there and stuff they had already called all the represented folks and then they were already doing the represented folks and I didn't really want to make a big stink about it because I like whatever let the unrepresented folks go first but it was just yeah down to me and my client 
and they called him and then we're like asking like who, who are you why are you here i'm in a suit i have a briefcase everything i'm like i'm his attorney and then they were like oh you don't look like an attorney um yeah <laughs> oh my god wait why didn't you go up when they call wait so when oh, they like they literally the like just they just like scanned the room for the attorneys and they looked at you and said she's not an attorney <laughs> they would call us by name and so i don't know why they hadn't called me and had checked in i had given them they had all my stuff that's so um, weird. So I guess he just was like, after he'd gotten through the attorneys, was like, that's it. No more. <laughs> he didn't say that out loud. But once I like stepped up with my client, when my client's name was called. He um, was like, who's this person in a suit? Yeah. yeah. Or like, you know, and then in Arizona being mistaken for the interpreter, like they kept me yeah. for like 15 minutes. And it's a locked facility. So you can't <laughs> get in. If they, like you're in jail too. Anyways, things like that are, I think the ones that are like pretty obvious. And then there were, like kind of like less obvious things yeah. that happen and that you it's not until I I feel like I didn't really feel the validation or like I was more questioning myself about them happening until I would talk to other women of color or even yes just, I agree with that I've even talked to just even like you know white women that are like oh yeah no they they treat so and so different than you <laughs> um one time I I'm oh, so disappointed so disappointed <laughs> I had done an argument in federal court, like an oral argument, and I went with my colleague, but he didn't, he's a white man. I love him. He's great. He didn't do the argument I did. I was up there doing the argument. He helped me prep and everything. But when we got back to the office, in front of me, one of our like supervisors was like, asked him how how the argument went. (laughs) (laughs) He did start to talk about it. A little bit and then he I did like, and then you're yeah. like okay well if you want to ask the person that actually argued yeah. I can tell you yeah I, I don't think I said it exactly like that but like kind of caught them all on it and then another one uh. like this, this happened a lot it got to the point where I asked my male colleagues to like um give and it was like I think it was more obvious because um at that time three of us had all graduated from NYU together all from the same clinic and like mm-hmm. not saying we had the exact same skills because like we all obviously had our own special talents and gifts <laughs> but, like, but you were in the same place in terms of experience yeah. with yeah. lawyering yeah and so I would you know like like years wise and I would get comments like oh you don't write as well as so-and-so or like oh did you come up with that by yourself or did you talk to so-and-so and so I was like one but also this is in the context me. of like a social justice nonprofit, right yeah just, yeah. To, be, just to be clear yeah yeah, yeah totally did another one I, I can't remember them all off the top of my head the point being that's like good you gotta block some of them out. Yeah, yeah i told my my male colleagues i'm like i don't think they think i can do legal writing or research even though like i'm like you know decent at it and like right for that yeah um, so like if you if i help you guys brainstorm like a cool idea please give me credit because they just like assume a lot of, and like and they to their credit they did start doing that but yeah, it was definitely a thing where, like, I felt I had to, like, prove myself. And sometimes it will be other women of color. Right. Um, yeah. I know. Um, it's a, Yeah, I know. It's, like, something to be aware of as a bit of color yourself because I feel like I've definitely made the mistake of trusting people that ju- just because they're fellow women of color lawyers or, like, fellow Latina lawyers, I just, you know, was so I think I was so eager for camaraderie and for like a shared experience and for like a sisterhood of sorts that I just like trusted people who I 
in hindsight, like should not have trusted. And then on the other side of the coin as well, I resonate with what you said about how you didn't start to notice how you were treated differently until like a woman of color validated it for you. A woman of color supervisor validated that for me and made me realize like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm not being given like as substantive tasks as someone else Mm -hmm. and being forced to do translation work when you're there to be a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That happened a lot. Yeah. And I think something that you just named there at the end is like, I think also women of color, I don't, and this is one that I still wonder, is it as, I'm not sure how conscious this is for the folks that are doing it, but like are kind of expected to take on more of the invisible labor tasks. And I think this one is like way more common in nonprofits because you don't have as many resources as maybe Mm -hmm. a private firm. But -hmm. like for some reason, like the women of color would be taking on like, yeah, some of those like things that aren't going to like pop out on a resume, (laughs) but like keep the place running. Well, they should stick out on a resume because it's a skill. And it's clearly like a much needed skill that is not prioritized in the hiring process. True. But then just like those kinds of tasks would fall on me in a way that I didn't realize until looking back. And it really, yeah, some of the burnout because it's like, you're kind of, you're doing more work and you're, and it's also (laughs) not being acknowledged, which is like, sometimes like, I wish, I mean, at the end of the day, acknowledgement isn't enough, like, please fucking pay me. But (laughs) like, I also wish sometimes people would, would realize how much a little bit of acknowledgement goes in terms of like, overall feeling appreciated and like I think for me feeling appreciate feeling underappreciated and undervalued is the fastest way to get me out of a job 100% agree with you (laughs) well that was one of the questions I wanted to ask is how can nonprofits do a better job of making women of color lawyers feel valued and appreciated yeah and I think honestly it's kind of wild like just thinking about how much of an asset especially women of color are like yeah you know we especially like in immigration a lot of the clients are going to be women and so like they automatically I think will end up trusting a woman attorney more or like a woman of color that probably you know speaks their language or has like inherent cultural competence that doesn't need to be taught in a workshop because you grew up in the culture (laughs) just gonna say cultural competency yes yeah like so really women of color lawyers are a very special asset in the immigration nonprofit field, probably a lot of nonprofit fields better. I do think that one thing nonprofits can do is a better job of like supporting women of color when they're actually there. Yeah. At the <laughs> period. <laughs> at the org. I mean, I think definitely recruiting women of color, but something that No, think, but that's not enough. <laughs> no. But something that I kind of mentioned at the beginning is how you're you're going to be onboarded. Like you shouldn't be oh, yeah. onboarded in a way where you're going to just, they're, they're bringing you in to help fulfill a need for them, especially when you're a newer attorney and even not, right. attorney, you just still need to learn like, what yes. are the systems that this place yes. has in, in place and you need time to mm-hmm. do that. So mm-hmm. is there going to be a ramp up period where like, you're not going to be at hundred percent capacity on day one? Yeah. Critical question to ask in the context of immigration to where yeah. you're, <laughs> everything's life or death and you're putting out fires every single day yeah and I think having so included in your wrap-up period I think having like somebody set up who has time so this is like probably 
either your like questions about your supervision or about the mentorship that you'll have on the job, but making sure that whoever is going to be providing your supervision actually has time to supervise you. It's really hard to gauge that in an interview though. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like everybody gives a bullshit answer. I mean, I also ask like, how am I going to be supported? And like, half the time I remember what they say. Because I'm so nervous about getting the fucking job. Definitely (laughs) trying to like really stretch out your network as much as possible. Like, I try to make a point of like, I don't really know you, but so-and-so put me in touch with you and asked you, how is this org? Like, I'll do my best to give you, like, all the, like, what I know about that org. Because, mm. like, you're right. Maybe the org isn't going to exactly say what their structure is. But, like, yeah, you know, that's it's a, a small world. It's a small yeah. world. So we can, like, definitely try to stretch our networks and figure out, like, what people, how people are there. Are they happy there? Like, yeah. Um, I've done that with you before. I've texted you, like, hey, I'm applying to this place. You mm-hmm. work there or someone, someone worked there. What was the vibe? <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally, yeah. And, like, a quick call. And, like, sometimes I don't know, but I know somebody who knows, and I can put you right. in touch with them. Yeah. Not just me. I'm not saying everybody contact me, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> like stretch your network. Your email inbox is flooded. <laughs> stretch your network. Figure out, like, you know. I guess, like, that's where LinkedIn would be a useful tool, right? Mm-hmm. I, like, actually haven't used that for that feature, but that's literally what that website is for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But yeah, I'm more of a just text, like, yeah, I don't know. I think I just have like mentors in my life where I'm like, oh, I have like an immigration law question. Like I need to text Jehan. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, sorry. I'm just kind of saying you need to find a Jehan. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't need to be this Jehan. It can be another Jehan. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> well, you're just busy is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. But I know you, you would love to mentor all the catching bonus, I know. Yeah, no, truly. truly yeah, no. the time. Yeah, the time. <laughs> my ideal job. <laughs> um, my ideal job. I would say, yeah, so like trying to gauge that supervision piece is crucial because, yeah. especially if you're new, like somebody, even if it's not at your org, but that they have, like, who will I be able to shadow or get like yes. support from if a hard question comes up? Yeah. Um, a hard question will come up. <laughs> so, like, knowing what <laughs> what resources they have on deck for you. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what else has made a job. I think jobs that are also flexible, excuse me, yeah. with like where you can work. I say Period. this because I know that women of color like tend to have like familial responsibilities. A lot of folks mm-hmm. are first gen. You might have like not just like your dependents, but maybe your parents that depend right. on you and like having different types of work flexibility to either like go home and help out or some yeah. jobs even now have like broader definitions of who can be like put on your insurance. I know some jobs like folks are talking about, I'm sorry to like bring up really depressing things, but especially with like DACA being on the chopping block, like how to still pay undocumented folks. And mm-hmm. some of like the things that they're talking about is like, you know, increasing the salary for undocumented folks so they can pay extra benefits and pay for other family members and things like that so it's a kind of expanding I'm not saying Mm. every workplace is going to have this but expanding the thought process of like who are dependent I think there's probably not a lot of places doing this actually or like when we say a lot I feel like you come from very specific yeah I come I'm coming from like we're the San Francisco Bay Area yeah it's starting to be like implemented i'm not saying like every place will have over here in arizona okay yeah (laughs) we just got paid sick leave in 2017 (laughs) no not not a joke will have this (laughs) at all but just like trying to find those places that will be even if it's not monetarily be flexible 
Um, I agree. I think even with like allowing remote work, for example, mm -hmm. like actually, you know what? I'm going to freaking break some news here right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just started work this week as a staff attorney for Endelon, the National Day Labor Organizers Ooh. Network. <laughs> and a huge reason why I decided to take this job is because they were super flexible. Like originally, I applied for the job thinking that I might have to move to LA. And I was like, your salary is a lot more reasonable if you let me stay here in Tucson. <laughs> awesome. So so either like pay yeah. me a lot more or just let me stay here. Yeah, and no, they let me stay really here. And like, just like you're saying, you know, people have different like financial responsibilities, different reasons to want to be in places that are not LA. And as an example, I think like embracing remote work and all the possibilities that that brings us is something that, organizations need to keep up with if they're trying to retain women of color definitely 100 percent. and congrats i'm so happy you're there they're such a great org knock on wood you know yeah knock, knock, on, knock, wood. On, knock on the wood <laughs> but no yeah it is is a really really cool organization like founded by a salvadoran person salvadoran people Pablo Alvarado and others and they're affiliated with the worker center in san salvador which I think is very cool. And there's a possibility that I might go back there after like not wow. being in the country since I was 12. Wow. So there's much to think about and much yeah. to do. Yeah. And I'm just like learning more about TPS. And I feel like now I understand like Salvadorans a lot more too. Like I understood that TPS caused people to live in this kind of liminal legality, but mm. I feel like now I like, really get it. It's like, wait, every yeah. 18 months, you know, and it like you yeah, know living your life in 18 month increments it's it's a little it's like parallel to what DACA folks have talked about as well mm -hmm. so no yeah. definitely and it's like it's not a it's it's a status that yeah you can it's easier to get deported than another type of immigration status that would ultimately 100%. yeah percent yeah yeah and that like yeah but, you, but yeah at the same time the you get a work permit yeah. And mm -hmm. like, that's why I think, yeah, liminal legality is a term that Lisa Brego came up with. And I love it because it brings out all of these complicated things. And like, this is such a tangent. <laughs> and also <laughs> another reason why you should become a literary patron if you're listening to this right now, because this was a book that I reviewed and I talked about this on the lit review. The fact that like so many Salvadorans have TPS has had a recognizable impact on transnational familial relationships and bonds because like there's a lot of kids in the Salvador whose parents came to the US and like they don't understand I mean we as like immigration lawyers barely understand like these arbitrary differences in how people are treated and like you know like they might understand that like their parents are there legally mm. and they have this other understanding of how like the U.S. legal system is supposed to lead to family reunification and like green cards and we're supposed to eventually be reunited and they're not. And there's, yeah. it's like people internalize that as being about like their family relationships when it's actually just a consequence of TPS and the really limited legal relief that it affords you. Like it lets totally. you stay here and work and you can send money back, but it doesn't give you any kind of permanence here in the U.S. and it doesn't let you petition for your family members. So totally, yeah. No, and I've definitely been on the other Such side of that. No, where like I'm talking to my clients' family members in El Salvador and they're like, so and so got a notice here. Does that mean like we can come? I'm like, no. Like it's but you're right, like no one really yes. understands. Like they, yes. they know that they're their confuses them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
they know their families here and that they have legal status and it's like okay like the u.s government is aware of them they're not you know quote unquote undocumented so why can't i go (laughs) and it's just it's very shitty it's very shitty but i'm yeah i'm really i really admire andalon especially a lot of the community resources they put out so i'm super happy you're gonna be there no and i really i think like so much of andalon's power does come from the Tepesianos themselves and like the, and the, just the organizers themselves. And so, yeah, I'm just excited to learn from them. And I think this is like a very exciting time too, because prior to Trump trying to arbitrarily rescind TPS for Salvador yeah. and Haiti and the, the countries that he referred to as shithole countries, yeah. um, like Tepesianos were not really like that politicized of a group mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and now there's like the tps alliance and like there's very much a movement led by them and i think that's great yeah. and i think it's like a group with a lot of power that hasn't been heard from as much as other yeah. constituencies and what a time to be alive what a time to be a salvadoran lawyer yeah i think it's such a perfect it's a great fit it's gonna be great (laughs) (laughs) i'm like don't even worry y'all i'm already on it about re-enrolling in therapy so i don't enter this new job traumatized from my past experiences (laughs) okay so no worries (laughs) Um, that's that's also key oh that might be something that yeah to look in so like what kind of health benefits they're offered a lot of immigration nonprofits are like thinking more about again in northern california thinking about mental health too for folks i think that leads into the final question i wanted to ask which is to get more concrete about how can nonprofits do a better job of supporting training and mentoring women of color lawyers like we've touched a bit on health insurance benefits remote work flexibility what else do you think we need to put on the table? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, this is so hard, all of these questions, actually, because they're I know. super I know. systemic. And, yeah. and like, I'm, like, thinking about, I'm, like, trying to balance giving concrete suggestions to... Right. No, you've been doing an amazing job. Like, I'm learning myself for next time I'm interviewing, I'm going to ask these fucking questions. <laughs> but I'm like, okay, these are concrete suggestions, but it's still putting the onus on, like, women of color right and i'm like right we don't want to be cheryl sandberg yeah. we don't want to tell people to lean in <laughs> lean in yeah <laughs> but systemically like some things that i think number one valued and appreciated is obviously like that they're promoting and paying you like to measure it with your experience yeah. and and like yeah for the skills you have because like I'm just betting a lot of the women of color might know other languages too so like yeah just just making sure like that is happening for you that's your ask ask about bilingual bonus pay specifically mm-hmm. another thing that i have seen at some nonprofits is also like having again like some of this is going to feel like work and i don't think it is on you like to like bring up all of these suggestions yeah <laughs> but some nonprofits will have like retreats or working groups specifically on like how to value their people of color staff or even like send their white staff off to trainings and not just DEI trainings but like actually like power analysis trainings like so like how Mm -hmm. even if you are also a person of color like how 
like you're in a position of power over somebody else and like how things that you've internalized that are bad Mm -hmm. um how like you could be passing that down to other people (laughs) so so yeah like seeing if folks can tap into those type of resources like those again though like I don't want to put the onus on you to be like suggesting like how this org can like restructure and reframe but yeah I think yeah so also I'll just I'll also add in to really quickly that you don't need to don't feel obligated to join the DEI Mm -hmm. working group because oftentimes that is a trap it's unpaid labor on your part and it's like it's just a sign that an organization actually isn't really redistributing resources in a meaningful way and is just placing labor on it's like staff of color you know it's a fine line because at the same time like I know friends of mine who like do it and like do participate in these things in their workplaces and you know what if that's your calling I won't stop you yeah but I know I definitely like have been at workplaces where I felt like I felt like guilty for not joining but actually like not joining was so much better for my mental health yeah I 100% agree with you that like don't feel forced into joining these and so I'm saying I don't want to put the onus on y'all to make these changes in these yeah I think those are good signs if they're actually committed to it. One thing that's nice at my org is that we have like different listening groups where they're facilitated by trained professionals. So they're like kind of like Mm -hmm. affiliations. And I do think people like those, like you can go to a BIPOC one or like a white identified listening one. And I guess, or like a LGBT one. And I think in like the white identified listening one, it's, it's not like for you to complain about like, oh, so sad I'm white or something like that. Like it's actually for you to like, to like learn about how to be a better coworker to your coworkers of color. That's, um, that's good. I don't know how to explain like what it's not, but I'm just saying it's not like a little affinity group for them. If that makes sense. Um, and then. Yeah, no. Yeah. I, I think, think it's oh, useful for white people to get together. Yeah. They can call yeah. it an affinity group if they want to. I don't yeah. really care. Something but else. they do need to like introspect. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Something else that I've seen that I think is helpful for nonprofits to do a better job is also to provide like for you coaching professional development. And it could be professional coaching. And it can also be like one nonprofit I worked at. I really liked it. They just kind of have life coaches. Actually, mm. this nonprofit does too. And I haven't taken advantage. <laughs> you could... also dude they should have financial coaches y'all are fucking already underpaying people yeah yeah and like and like you would call and you could have a whole session with somebody and like honestly i think like the life coaches would help i'd help me at least i will say like be like yeah i i deserve better than what Mm. is happening to me right now in work Mm. and like they would help me like talk through how to do it that's awesome and like i do like i'm pretty well this nonprofit the ILRC is is like more well resourced than other nonprofits I've been at so there's other type of coaching but but yeah I think that would really help if there was these other resources available to you as part of your job yeah yeah I agree and I feel like this has kind of entered like workplace expectations in, in terms of physical health like you know a lot of places will pay for a gym membership and I feel like mm-hmm this is kind of that for like your mental health, which is just as important as something we should be thinking about, like, you know, always in conjunction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very important. There's like, I think, I mean, I'm almost hundred percent sure my therapist like named that I was burned out before. Like I was okay naming that to myself. Like, like, yeah, I felt tired, (laughs) exhausted, but I wasn't (laughs) 
naming yeah i'm tired burnout. yeah <laughs> i'm like oh this is just how life is or something that's not yeah okay well i think those are all the questions i had the last last question that i'm asking all of the interviewees this season is Ooh. well wait i wonder if i whatever <laughs> is what is something that is inspiring you lately oh that's a great question one thing that's been pretty inspiring lately is in the shutdown detention fights I'm in is like starting to see more intersectionality. So like realizing how detention centers and I think like Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about this a lot mm. about like how you can't just like say like, oh, it's a detention center. You have to look at like the geography, what's going on, like economically, what's going on, like what's the right. history of that place. Right. And right. so, like, I'm starting to see, especially in the Inland Empire here in California, in Adelanto, like, the organizers there on the ground have been really intentional about, like, what's the history of Adelanto? Well, actually, we had military pollution here, like, military base pollution mm. that, like, effed up our water, like, effed up our land. And then you brought in detention centers that are also environmentally harmful. Mm. So now, like, we can actually team up with, like, the environmental justice folks that, like, have been talking about the military pollution we can team up with like affordable housing folks to talk about like what can we have that benefits our community rather than a detention center and like so seeing a lot of those conversations that like organizers on the ground have been yeah engaged in for decades but like yeah coming together now with like the immigrant rights movement fight and the criminal justice movement fight yeah it's been like pretty cool to witness and we're starting to talk to like organizers in other states or we've been talking to them but like talking to them on like this kind of intersectional lens more more and more it's been pretty cool that's awesome yeah that's inspired me (laughs) um well thank you so much jayhan for coming back on the podcast to do a part two of this study of the lawyering profession this was this conversation was more focused on women of color lawyers making lawyering sustainable for them because there's nutrition crisis and couldn't think of anybody better to do this with you're so knowledgeable you bring so much insight thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today it was a pleasure thanks for having me Bye, Bye. thank you for listening to radio cachimbona radio cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast hosted and produced by yvette porja The audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans as a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. If you want to support the podcast, the best way to do so is by becoming a Patreon. You become a monthly subscriber for $3, $5, or $10 a month and get exclusive access to the Lit Review, which is the Radio Cachimbona book club, where I review timely texts with other women of color. I just finished recording an amazing conversation with Adriana Viols about Paper Cadavers, the archives of dictatorship in Guatemala by Kirsten Weld. Go to patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona to get into that. A completely free way to support the podcast is by leaving a rating and review wherever you listen, whether that be Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also support the podcast and follow along. Continuing the conversation on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Radio Cachimbona. That's it for now. I really, really appreciate it. Bye, Cachimbonas. <laughs>